Before we pray this morning, I want to take a moment and read to you the story from Matthew 25, a parable of Jesus that we're going to be looking at together this morning. Parables are not something that is actually familiar language to us. So there's a tendency for us to think of them kind of as these quaint fables that Jesus, and no, these are profound spiritual truths. You see, the scripture tells us that all of us have a God. And, and all of us worship the God that we have. Some of you might be saying, well, Pastor Joel, I'm not even sure I believe in God. Well, you can't help yourself. And I'm not just talking about the God of the Bible. Worship is something that is born in us. It's, it's not just what we do here on Sunday morning. It's, it's who or what we value, what we invest in, what, what we spend our time and our money and our thoughts on. That, that's who or what we worship. And Jesus comes preaching a message of the kingdom, and he's inviting us to love him, to follow him. It's not a simple thing he's asking, but he says, if you'll follow me, I'm inviting you into a whole different way of life that you can't understand. And so he tells these parables. You see, if I say these things this morning, probably most of you would say, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But Jesus is not really concerned whether you agree or disagree. He's more passionate about us actually doing it. And so he tells stories because stories have a way of going from your head to your heart. So often he would start the stories with these words. Then the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and this story he says, it will be like a bridesmaid who, looked, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come, meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Hey, could, could you give us some of your oil? Because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, Well, we don't have enough for all of us. Why don't you run to a shop, buy some for yourselves? While they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they found, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know you. So you two must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in the good name of our Savior, Jesus. Your word says that when we come to you, that we can come with confidence. Not confidence in something we've done or something we might do, but confidence in what has been done by your Son for us. And that because of his grace, we can walk into your presence with our heads held up, right, clean, purified. Thank you. So we come to you this morning. Your word also tells us that 
the, the world around us is groaning as the pains of childbirth. And we feel that. It's just groaning on every side. Wars. Nations against other nations. And the whole world is, is pulled into the, to the war and the, the trouble that is in so many places around the world this morning. You said to your friends, hey, when you see those things, rejoice. Don't rejoice because it's happening, but rejoice because it means that, that I'm coming. So while this morning we look to you, we also ask for your intervention in, in places around the world that, that your peace and your hope are needed. Give us ears this morning to hear your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 25. Don't you love to wait? I mean, you go, maybe the last time you were at Costco and you're coming up to the cash register and there's a lot of people there and you look and you go, well, I'm going to go in that line because it's a lot longer. And that'll give me a chance to like talk to people, maybe have a little time to relax before I get back out into the crazy. Or maybe morning time, you're on your way to work, you're on a road that you've been on a hundred times, you know that the next light, if you get stuck at the red light, it's like half the morning. So you have it timed perfectly and you're coming and you know you got it. And about 30 meters before you get there, some guy pulls out from the right in front of you and just slowly, and you just stop and say, Lord, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not feeling it either. <laughs> yeah. I don't really like to wait. And in truth, the culture that we live in is almost opposed to waiting. Like waiting's not a good thing. I had to wait so long. There's whole international enterprises that have been set up to help us not have to wait so long. I mean, there was days when you would order a book, and it took three days to get there. Now we've solved. But in this story, this parable, Jesus says that if you're going to follow him, waiting is not only part of the story, but it's an essential in the story. The parable that I just read may be one of the simplest ones to understand on the surface. It's not real complicated. The main idea is fairly evident. The person who's giving account of the story is the Apostle Matthew. Matthew was actually there on the day that Jesus slept. So he's standing on the side of the mountain with Jesus, with his friends. The disciples are around. They're having a conversation. And all of a sudden, Jesus ascends and returns to the Father in front of their eyes. And they did what all of us would do. They stood there and went, oh, no. Now what do we do? As they're standing there, an angel comes to them and says, hey, this is exactly like he told you it would be. Go, 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 go. Go preach the message. And, and may I remind you that the same thing you just saw is going to happen in reverse. He is going to return. So, the story that Jesus tells, it actually accentuates a conversation that it started 
few chapters earlier with the Pharisees, after having a conversation with the Pharisees about the end times, about the day of the Lord, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, hey, can, can you fill us in on what, what this is going to look like? And so this story comes in response to that conversation. They're talking about the day of the Lord. All throughout scripture, you see reference in the prophets and Jesus to this day that's called the day of the Lord that is it's at the end of this story of history when Jesus returns. So, one of the realities of the kingdom of Jesus, of living life with Jesus as the authority in your life, is waiting. What do we need to know? How do we learn to wait well? When you read the scriptures, a lot of the faith stumbles in the Bible happen in waiting. The first person that was called of God, with whom God made a covenant, was Abraham. Abraham was a great man of faith. He left his home. He left everything to follow this promise of God. And, and part of the promise was that God was going to give him a son. The problem was he was really old, and so was his wife. But they waited. And they waited. And they waited. It's not that they didn't believe the promise. It's that I think Abraham thought, well, maybe I should help God to get, the, get her done here. And so you know the story. He takes the maidservant of his wife, and they have a son. And we're still living with the results of that. Saul. Going into battle, and that was what they were supposed to be doing, but God told him to wait. Wait until the prophet comes, wait until, and he laid it all out. And Saul waited, and he waited, and he waited some more, and then he realized, wow, the enemy's coming, we got to do something. And so he took matters into his own hands. And it was that day that it says that the Spirit of God left Saul. So how do you wait? Well, in this story, the first thing it says that's really important if you're going to wait is a really clear vision of the bridegroom, of God, of, of the Christ. What enables us to wait is, is a really clear vision of who he is. The way that A.W. Tozer says it is this. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wait a minute. I thought it was my career or my Actually, what you think about God, what you believe to be true, shapes everything about your life. You say, well, I don't even believe he exists. Well, that clearly shapes then how you live. But it, it's hard for us to get it, a really clear picture because he's just so not like what we thought he would be. When you pray, What's your posture when you come to God? I don't mean like, are you kneeling? Or, but in your soul. Like, do you come in shame? Do you come in, maybe God's there? He's kind of dis... Well, that's not the God that's revealed in this story. Jesus uses a picture, a, a metaphor. Metaphors in, in these stories, as I said last time, are, they're just really important as our images... It's those things that help us to connect. So as important as the details in this story is the metaphor that Jesus chose. In this story, 
Jesus is the bridegroom. Really. Really. God, the lover, the pursuer. I didn't write this. This is Jesus. Jesus does not use a military metaphor. He could have. In the parable, what he's trying to say is fairly simple. He's trying to say, get ready. Get ready for what? Get ready for what you never imagined. To be forgiven, to be made right, to be wooed, to be cherished, to be celebrated by the Lord of the universe. Wow. So at the Last Supper, Jesus was explaining to his friends what was going to happen, that he was going to be leaving them. And Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, asked the question that I know I would have asked if I was there, as probably some of you. Okay, you, I left everything to follow you. You're leaving us. Like, how are we going to find you? Try putting heaven in your GPS. You won't get that. Like, how do you find God? How do you find this God that you can't... And Jesus says to him, well, I'm the way. And then he says this. If I'm leaving you, it's because I'm returning to my father. And in my father's house, there are a lot of rooms. If that wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you that it is. And then he says, if I go, I will come again and I'll receive you. And don't miss this. He says, I'll receive you so that where I am, you may be also. The bridegroom. Any Hebrew in the first century, as soon as Jesus said those words to his friends, would have readily understood that Jesus was talking about a wedding. The imagery is of a wedding. That's how weddings happen. These two families would come together. They would decide together that their daughter and their son are going to be married. They would go through the whole dowry. And then this family agrees with this family. And they make the decision together with this couple that they're going to get married. Now they are fiancés. Well, in our culture, fiancé means, well, we'll try this out, see if there's... A... Once that decision was made, the deal was done. But it wasn't finished. So the, the, the husband-to-be would go to his village, the bride-to-be would go to her village, and the husband would return to the house of his father. And in his father's house, there was lots of rooms. There was the place where his parents lived, and maybe his grandparents. And then there was other houses, like in a courtyard, where there were new families established, and he was going to build a house for those he was going to receive, for the one who is his bride. Immediately, they understood the image. Then if you read through to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, the end of history is described as a wedding feast. Is that the way that you think about your relationship to God? It's actually this dimension that is one of the, the distinctives of biblical faith. Other religions talk about obedience and submission and keeping laws. and th Those are important. But they don't talk about intimacy. That Jesus is calling us into a relationship, into love and affection, to be known and loved. So Paul writes to his friends in a church in Ephesus, and he tells them, hey, I'm praying for you. But his prayer doesn't sound like the prayers that we pray. He's not praying that 
they'll succeed in everything they do, that anybody that's sick will get better. Not that those are bad prayers, but his prayer is much deeper. He prays that they will have a spirit of revelation that will help them to know the height and the depth and the length and the width of the love of their heavenly Father. As you come to know that God waiting for him starts to look very different. In the story also, it's important to have a really clear vision of the future. Not the future that you're thinking about, but the future actually as the Bible defines that it will be. The point in this story is that the bridegroom, the king, is coming. And that that will be the final chapter in this story, on this side of heaven, a plan that God has been weaving actually since the Garden of Eden. So if you read the New Testament, there's about 300 references that talk about the second coming or the return of Christ. Jesus clearly says that no one knows when this will happen and not really exactly how it will happen. Strangely, there's still a lot of Christians who spend a lot of time trying to figure out on their calendar the exact day. And Jesus says, you can't know that. But he says to his friends, there are some indications that will tell you that the day is getting close. So, Matthew 24, the disciples are asking him, it says, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, hey, can you tell us when all this is going to happen and, and what will be the sign that the end of the age is near? Jesus said, well, there's going to be wars. There's nations that are going to start fighting against nations. There's going to be famines and earthquakes. There's going to be fire. Does any of this sound familiar? So Jesus describes all that, and then he says in verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. But about that day or that hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. And then here's his conclusion. He says to his friends, therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know on what day our Lord will come. When, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, there's really two ideas, essential ideas in that day. The first is that Jesus is going to return to receive his own, his bride. No one knows the day, no one knows the hour. But the second thing, the second idea is that there will be an establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. At that time, all evil will be destroyed, Satan will be cast away, and now and forever, the reign of Jesus will be complete and established. But it hasn't happened yet. Sometimes when we talk about this, my kids will say, Dad, you keep saying it could be tomorrow. It's probably not going to be like thousands of years. I mean, Jesus is coming. And they're right. But that doesn't mean he isn't coming. That just means today they're right. Jesus says it will happen. And then he 
it's almost like he understands what his disciples are going to say. And so he answers the question. He says, hey, do you remember Noah? God called this man and he said, I'm going to send rain. I want you to build an ark. And so Noah believed the word of God and he started to build an ark. And then he waited. And he waited. And he waited. I'm sure his neighbors enjoyed the waiting. Seriously, Noah hasn't rained like in 10 years. But hey, nice boat. And he waited. And you know what? His neighbors were right. For 4,000, 5,000 days, they were right. But Jesus said on the day when you couldn't afford to be wrong, they were wrong. So the fact that Jesus hasn't come back doesn't mean he's not coming. It just means he's not here yet. But he will come, and he's inviting us to live as though it were true that it could be tomorrow, because it could. So it continues in the story that this is who God is, and this is what the future is going to look like, and what I'm asking of you is not to discern what day it's going to be, but to be ready every day and waiting. So in the story, the story actually happens at midnight, which is important because that's a time of surprise. You don't know when it's going to come. And what God wants of us, what he wants is for our communion with him and for his kingdom to be our lives right now. So if you read Hebrew literature, they're, they're often written in a parallel structure. What does that mean? That means that often the first line and the last line are, are saying kind of the same thing. They're repetitive. They reflect one another. And then the second line and the second to last line reflect one another. And then the closer you get, right in the middle is the point. And in this story, here's the point. At midnight, they were roused by a shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come and meet him. He is coming for his bride. So what does it mean to be ready for his coming? Well, what it means is that we're living in the kingdom now, in a relationship with him now. Often when we talk about being ready, we put most of the emphasis on the event of coming to Christ. But Jesus is talking about way more than that. He's talking about living our life under the reign of Christ. Well, let me flesh this out a little bit. Jesus, when he left, asked his disciples to go preach the good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? Well, the good news is that we're all separated from God. And God, in the Old Testament, announces the coming of a Messiah, that he's going to make this right. And, and, and then the New Testament God keeps his promise and Jesus comes. He comes, he walks among us, he reveals who his father is, he heals, and then he's wrongfully convicted and he's brutally crucified. He rises from the dead and through his death and resurrection, not only are we restored to God, but we're taken out of this kingdom we were born into and put into this kingdom of Jesus. He sends his Holy Spirit to live with us, to be with us. And now he's gone ahead to prepare a place. So he says, go preach that message. First time that one of the apostles preaches in Acts chapter 2, Peter is the preacher, and he just preaches this message. He says, fellow Israelites, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the one that came, he was the Messiah that had been predicted. But you didn't understand. And so you had him tried and handed over to evil men who crucified him. But, he says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep Jesus in the tomb. And then he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the people heard this message and they said, now what do we do? Oh my goodness. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So in order to enter into the kingdom, the first step, he says, is to repent and be baptized. Now remember, the image here in this story is of a wedding. In order to enter into a marriage in that culture, there was a dowry that had to be paid. We don't do that in our culture, but where we live in West Africa, this is still a very common thing. In the last six months, we've had the privilege with two uh, families that we've been friends with for years to go with them to the dowry uh, ceremony with their daughter. So when you go to the ceremony, the family of the, the bride-to-be is sitting here, and facing them from the other direction is the family of the groom. So they first ask, why have you come? And they tell the story, well, this guy met this girl, and this is what happened, and so we've come today to ask for her hand. And the wife's family always acts very surprised. Are you kidding me? We are never letting that happen. Okay, well, what if we gave you, and then the dowry starts being paid, and it can be all kinds of things, cloths and woven things, and they start stacking it up, and the family looks at it and goes, well, at least we can talk now, but that will never be enough, and it's just four or five hour ceremony. Once the ceremony's done, ceremony happens, the marriage, marriage certificate ensues. All of these are proofs to everyone else of what just happened. Peter says, if you want to enter into this kingdom, if you want to enter into a relationship with God, the way in there is to repent and be baptized. What does that mean? When you repent, it's actually like you're agreeing with God that he is God and that you're not. And that the road that you're on is leading away from him. And you turn around and you walk in the other direction. It's a decision that you make. Then it says, be baptized. That's simply a symbol, a sign that you have engaged yourself in a relationship with him. That is how someone enters into a relationship with God, into a kingdom that is eternal. So clearly in this story... You can't be ready for the bridegroom if you've never entered into the dance. And the way in is to repent, believe, and be baptized. But that's just the doorway. I think Jesus is talking about much more here. He's talking about living every day in a relationship with the bridegroom, with the king. I don't think that most people get married so that they can have a marriage certificate. 
You get married so that you can spend your life with this person. You don't come to God just so you can get a free pass to heaven. That's part of it. But you come in to God so that you can know him and walk with him. When you look at a married couple, how do you know that they're married? Well, I mean, there are some symbols, but what you hope is if you look long enough, you'll go, I think those two are together. Well, that's what's supposed to happen when we walk into a relationship with Jesus. You spend enough time in that relationship and people start to go, I think, I think he might be hanging around with Jesus. So being ready is cultivating a relationship with the king. The image in the story of readiness is oil. So the oil in the lamps of these women. In the story, it's a little confusing. What are these women doing? What is their role in this? Well, this is how it works. When the house is ready, and you don't know how long it's going to take, it might take a month, it might take two months, it might take a year. When it's ready, the bridegroom leaves, and he goes to, to search for his bride. Waiting are these ten bridesmaids whose job is to hold light so at night people can find their way into the ceremony. So the bridegroom leaves, he goes to his wife, er, to his bride's village, he takes the bride, and then they're going to walk back and they're going to go to the celebration of this wedding. Well, he might go straight, but probably he won't. He'll go through the villages with his friends and showing his bride-to-be and rejoicing. And Well, that's what happened in this story, and it took longer than they thought. The poor bridesmaids were waiting, and they fell asleep. Some of them were prepared, and the preparation was oil. In the Bible, oil represents the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, you see people being anointed with oil. There's nothing magic in the oil. It's just a symbol that the important thing is God's presence. In the New Testament, in the book of James, we're instructed, hey, if you're sick, confess your sins, and then go find the elders, something we practice here, have them pray for you and anoint you with oil. Again, the oil heals no one. It's God that heals, but it's simply a symbol of his presence. When we arrived in Ivory Coast in the early 1990s, most of the people we were living and doing life with were new believers, people who were first generation in faith. I remember one time one of our colleagues were out with a pastor friend, and a sick fellow came. He wanted to be prayed for. And so they said to the pastor, hey, why don't we anoint him with oil? The pastor's like, hmm, never heard of that before. And they said, well, let me show you. In the book of James, it says that when someone's sick, if, if you just anoint them with oil and pray, this is how it works. Okay. So she gets the pastor a bottle of cooking oil. And they pray for him, and then he's going to anoint him. Smart guy. If a little oil works, why not a lot? And so he <laughs> dumps his whole, yeah, you know what? It's not the oil. It's God. But the oil represents relationship, being in the presence of God. So what does it mean to be ready? What is the oil that keeps the torch on? It's staying connected to Christ. Prayer. 
So you can have all the right doctrines, you can say all the right things, but if you're not connected to Jesus, you might be walking in the dark. So he says, be ready. Closes the story by inviting them to wait, but actively. Sometimes when we think about waiting, what we think is that you just sit there. No, 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 this waiting is not sitting. This waiting is actively pursuing the kingdom while at the same time waiting. I mean, most of us spend our whole lives waiting for something. Little kids, they, they just can't wait to go to school. And then they can't wait to be a big kid and go to high school. And then can't wait to get their driver's license. I'm talking about the kid, not the parents. They, they can't wait. And then college, and then, and then their career, and, and then they, they get married and have kids. and grand, We're always waiting. The disciples waited a long time. When Jesus left, the angel said to them, the very thing that you just saw, go preach the kingdom, and the day is coming when, when he's going to come, and they thought that meant that that would be in front of their physical eyes, and they waited. But they didn't wait sitting. They waited by learning to live in his presence. Pastor Richard Nathan says that that often the two things God uses to shape us are waiting and pain. They're things that pry our hands open. What, what we really need, what the gift of the kingdom is, is God. But often we have so many things in our hands that we have no room for him. And in his kindness, waiting and, and pain are the things that push us to, to open ourselves to him. Not always, but they open the door. The gift of the kingdom is not your career. The gift of the kingdom is not that you'll always walk in good health. The gift of the kingdom is God. And as you, the more we learn to walk in that relationship, the more delight we will know when we finally see him. Well, what would it look like if somebody learned to wait like that? Let me read you this story in closing. It's happened in 1614 in the eastern part of France. A young boy was born by the name of Nicholas Herman. He didn't have the privilege of attending school. He was from a poor family, family who worked as household servants. As a teenager, he was called to war and fought as a soldier in the 30-year war. During that time, he was taken prisoner and also severely wounded. The wounds caused him to be lame the rest of his life. During his years as a soldier, Nicholas came to faith in Christ during the winter, sitting in a foxhole and, and observing a tree. As he observed the barren tree, he thought of how the tree would soon produce life. To him, it was a testimony of God's life. If God could do that for a tree, how much more for a person? So in the simplest way he knew how, he, he reached out to God. After his years of service, Nicholas learned to wait. He wasn't waiting to no longer be lame. He wasn't waiting to be wealthy. He wasn't waiting for anything except God. To do that, he joined a Carmelite monastery in Paris as a dishwasher. 
For the remaining years of his life, he made the goal of his life to spend every moment possible in the awareness of God's presence. It was a journey. When he died, his friends put some of his letters together in a book. The title of the book is The Practice of the Presence of God. You may know him as Brother Lawrence. His book, written in the 17th century, is now believed by many to be the second most widely read book in human history after the Bible. Why? Because he believed that the most important thing was to be with God. When a soul is with God, it doesn't matter if he's a dishwasher or a king. Our souls thrive, not through our accomplishments, but through simply being with God. All of us are waiting for the day that will finally be delivered from all of this, that will actually be in the presence of God, the, the restoration of all things. But maybe the waiting is part of the shaping. What are you waiting for presently? Maybe... There's a prayer that you've been praying for a long, long time, and you're waiting. Or, or a child that you've been praying for for a long time. Maybe there's a growth in your journey that you're just waiting. Oh, God, please. Waiting is part of the journey, and it may be the place we're best able to be with him. Jesus says, the door will shut. And he asks, are you ready? Jesus, thanks for your words. Sometimes they're not easy. Waiting is not something that any of us is equipped to do. But I pray that, that you would, this morning, renew our vision of who you are. That the truth of your words would not just be a story, but would be something imprinted in our souls. That, that this life that we're living right now is just like a flicker compared to eternity with you. And, and the day is coming. We may see it. We may not. But would you help us to live as though it could be tomorrow? We ask all these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.